everyone, welcome to episode 34 of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. This week, we'll do our usual roundup of CVEs and fixes for the supported Ubuntu releases. And I'm going to have a chat to Joe McManus about uh, some recent uh, discussions around insider threats to organizations and how that applies to InfoSec and Ubuntu as well. Okay, so let's get into it. So this week, there were 32 unique CVEs addressed across the supported Ubuntu releases. The first thing I want to look at is uh, an unfortunate regression for a Samba update. Back in episode 32, we talked about a Samba update to fix a privilege escalation vulnerability. And unfortunately, this update caused a regression where our Samba may subsequently then crash with the update installed uh, in certain configurations. So that's now been fixed for trusty extended security maintenance, Xenial and Bionic. We've got an update for the GNOME desktop package. Uh, one CVE here addressed for Bionic, Cosmic and Disco. Uh, in this case, uh, we had a discussion about uh, nearly a year ago now, actually, towards the start of this podcast, around uh, GNOME using bubble wrap to sandbox uh, various thumbnailer processes that it would run. You know, so we've seen uh, different vulnerabilities around you know, image handling and that kind of thing in different libraries. And so uh, GNOME introduced a, a generic kind of sandbox around the way that they would call out to different uh, libraries to do their thumbnails for images. And this includes a couple of different components. One of them is using bubble wrap, which uh, uses user namespaces and that kind of thing to uh, essentially confine the resulting thumbnail process. But it also creates a, a libseccomp sandbox as well. And this would use uh, the TIO CSTI, uh, or it would try to filter the TIO CSTI uh, IO control. Uh, to avoid having the thumbnailer be able to send uh, kind of control characters back to the controlling terminal which could allow it to possibly escape the sandbox. And unfortunately, this was insufficient. Uh, this is actually pretty similar to a CVE that we had earlier in the year for SnapD and then a follow-up one for Flatpak. And uh, yeah, so basically this has just been tightened up in the uh, libseccomp sandbox that is implemented for the thumbnailers. It must be noted though, that you would actually need to have compromised a thumbnail in the first place to be able to actually use this in any way to you know, actually cause any kind of effect. So a bit of a low, uh, you know, low likelihood that one, but yeah, that's been fixed for GNOME desktop. We've got an update for Keep Alive D. So this is one CVE here for precise extended security maintenance, trusty extended security maintenance, Xenial, Bionic, and Cosmic. Uh, it had a, a heap buffer overflow, which could be triggered when parsing HTTP response codes. And essentially it would just take whatever the HTTP response code was and uh, copy that into a you know, fixed size 10 byte long buffer on the heap. And obviously if you could then send back a, you know, a really long HTTP response code, which would clearly be invalid, but nonetheless it would try to handle that and copy it in there and it would copy in you know, your attacker supplied uh, data. You, know, you could therefore overflow that buffer on the heap, corrupt the heap, and you know, fun ensues. So whether you know, likely just a crash and resulting in denial of service, or uh, if you, you know, if you can set things upright, you could get remote code execution. So yeah, that's basically been fixed to ensure it properly parses the response code and tries to limit it to at most you know, three digits long. So that's been fixed uh, for Keep Alive D. We've got an update for Free RDP. So back in December, uh, episode sixteen, I talked about an update that we did for Free RDP. That was for uh, Free RDP in main, uh, which is uh, in say Bionic and Cosmic Free RDP two. But we also still have the original FreeRDP package, uh, FreeRDP version 1 in Bionic and Cosmic. And so that wasn't patched at that point because it was in universe. It has now been patched though. So this fixes uh, essentially six CVEs here. 
uh, 4.3 RDP1 in Bionic and Cosmic. So if you want more details on that, uh, I'd suggest you go listen back to episode 16. Next, we've got an update for Thunderbird. So this is updating Thunderbird to the latest upstream release, version 60.7.0. This includes a heap of security fixes, as we often see in these uh, updates for Thunderbird. Uh, Most of these come from Firefox, because Thunderbird uh, shares a lot of the same code base as Firefox, and is based on that. So we've got fixes here for things like denial of service problems, uh, the ability to bypass same origin restrictions, or even uh, remote code execution, that kind of thing. So yeah, that's the latest update for Thunderbird. Next, we've got an update for GNU Screen. So this is one CVE here fixed for precise extended security maintenance and trusty extended security maintenance. So if you are an extended security maintenance customer and you're using Screen, you'll get this one. Uh, This is a pretty old one. It was a CVE from back in 2015 and a bit of a lower priority one, but uh, you know, we like to try and go back and fix as many things as we can. In this case, uh, it was an attacker could possibly cause a stack overrun due to essentially unbounded recursion if they included a a large number of repeated ANSI escape sequences in their output. Next, we've got an update for sudo. Back in episode 31, I mentioned an update for sudo uh, for Xenial. This is the corresponding update backported to trusty extended security maintenance. We've also got an update for evolution data server. So one CVE here for Xenial and Bionic. So there was some research recently uh, from Marcus Brinkman that showed it was possible to create an encrypted email using uh, PGP that had a zero length encrypted section, but would then include other encrypted contents and that evolution and other email clients, when they would go to, you know, parse this and decrypt it, would actually show the whole thing as having been encrypted. They didn't really have any way to try to distinguish uh, this kind of zero length encrypted part, even though it was a properly valid, uh, you know, encrypted GPG email. And uh, a lot of these clients, they call out to uh, GPG, the binary directly to do the decryption. And they weren't kind of properly parsing the output from that. They were pretty lax in how they were handling that. And so they would kind of confuse the whole email as being encrypted rather than just, you know, effectively in this case, you know, none of it being encrypted because it was zero length. And uh, due to the nature of evolution as a, a package, it kind of has two parts. It has the data server back end where kind of all the data is stored and you've got evolution as the front end. And so this is the uh, the fix for the backend part, which is actually where the uh, calling out to uh, GNU PG is done. And so this has been fixed to make sure it actually uh, parses the output from GNU PG properly and is able to therefore uh, show that you know there is no kind of encrypted content in this case, or that the you know the unencrypted content is properly unencrypted. Uh, and then there uh, should be a corresponding update to evolution uh, that actually does the UI part to distinguish that uh, later down the track. We've got an update for GNU TLS. So five CVEs here for Xenial, Bionic, Cosmic, and Disco. Three of these relate to uh, a bit of an old attack, Lucky 13, that was published back in 2013. This was a timing attack against uh, various TLS implementations that used the Cypher block chaining mode. And uh, one of the countermeasures at that point uh, was proposed was to use pseudo constant time uh, implementations. And uh, that was done in GNU TLS. But uh, recent research, by, uh, in fact, one of the original inventors of uh, the RSA algorithm, uh, Adi Shamir and others, has shown that this uh, pseudo-constant time is not actually effective or not properly effective in preventing these timing attacks. Uh, so that's been fixed. Uh, plus, we've got another CVE here fixed uh, that was discovered by Tavis Ormandy from Google Project Zero, where a double free could occur when handling uh, X509 certificates. Uh, this would likely result in the usual uh, crash and therefore denial of service, but possible code execution you know, due to memory management issues. 
And one more CVE here that was due to uh, a possibly uninitialized pointer that could be dereferenced when handling certain post handshake messages. Again, you know, another memory corruption vulnerability. So a likely crash into a lot of service as the outcome from that one. Next up, we've got an update for CoroSync. Uh, this is one CVE here fixed for Xenial and Bionic. Uh, in this case, there was an integer overflow that could lead to a possible buffer overflow uh, on read in CoroSync and it was able to be triggered by an unauthenticated uh, remote user. And so this would result likely in a crash and denial of service. So that's been fixed for CoroSync in Xenial and Bionic. And finally, we've got an update for libseccomp. So one CVE here fixed for trusty extended security maintenance, Xenial, Bionic, Cosmic, and Disco. So libseccomp is used to implement sandboxes for certain applications. And one of the things you can obviously do with it, you write kind of BPF, um, Berkeley Packet Filter filters, as to what kind of system call arguments and that kind of thing uh, are allowed and what uh, operations to therefore take, you know, deny or not as a result. And includes various comparison operators. So you can compare arguments, you know, is uh, say, you know, a file descriptor less than something or whatever it might be. And Jan Horn discovered that on 64-bit platforms, it did not generate the correct BPF to do this comparison correctly. And so it would be possible to bypass uh, some of these kind of filters. Libsetcomp was updated to be able to handle this and generate the correct BPF. Uh, and a new version, version 2.4.0 was released. Uh, and usually we don't uh, upgrade to new versions of packages in Ubuntu. We stick with the same version and we backport security fixes. But in this case, there were a lot of changes that had happened between the versions in Ubuntu and this later version that included that fix. And a lot of the, uh, or, and that fixed to uh, handle this properly relied on other kind of intermediate changes that changed in particular uh, various parts of libsetcomp internally. And so we determined that the risk of trying to backport that uh, and kind of do that correctly and not have regressions was probably greater than if we were to just upgrade libsetcomp entirely. So what, that's what we've done. We've upgraded libseccomp to version 2.4.0 in uh, all those releases now. So that vulnerability is now fixed. And that takes us to the end of the usual roundup of package updates and vulnerabilities. Uh, the next thing I want to look at is Joe and I had a chat this week about um, some various insider threats to different organizations and some different news articles that have come out around that. Thanks, Alex. So yeah, this week I wanted to talk about um, insider threats. And what prompted this was a uh, post I saw about Snapchat. So Snapchat had a problem where they discovered, em I think employees were able to view some of these snaps. Um, I must admit, I'm not, I think I'm, I think I'm too old to use Snapchat. <laughs> so, so I don't use it very much. But I guess the idea of Snapchat, for those who don't use it, is that you send it and it expires. It's a point in time you can look at it, then it goes away. Am I right there, Alex? Are you a Snapchatter? Uh, no, I'm not usually a Snapchatter. Uh, yes, I, I think originally it was definitely that, you know, it's this ephemeral, essentially ephemeral messaging. Obviously, it goes mm -hmm. through their third-party server, so it's not entirely, if you think about it, they could be storing it. Uh, but I think nowadays it has grown maybe some more persistence features in that people actually do want, you know, a history to their messages and all of that. But, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, so I think the report that... Um, that came out was that employees were abusing their access to view the data. So that data included things like location data and, um, and phone numbers, and then the snaps themselves. Um, and so, you know, they, they said, well, we log access to all the data, but then another employee, I guess an ex employee said the logging wasn't that good. <laughs> so that, that is a problem. Um, so then, you know, there's other problems that we've seen with this, you know, Facebook, I think a year or so ago got in trouble because employees, 
um, or at least one employee in particular was using their access to data to um, cyber stalk people. Um, and they, they let those people go. And then there's nation state insider threats. So I think Boeing in 2014 um, had somebody who was doing a nation state attack, which is really interesting. Um, some people would wonder why you'd want to do that. And the whole idea there is that someone else could get access to these, um, to all their R&D and push it back to, uh, to, for in this case, I believe it was China. And the reason you do that is obviously because then somebody else has spent all the money on R&D and you can sell it cheaper. Um, and then I think like Anthem Insurance had an employee who emailed 18,000 customer records to their personal Gmail account. And then you've got all the other things like self-inflicted wounds and an insider um, can do things because they've got privileged access and someone can accidentally delete the wrong database. Um, <laughs> I've used this example. This was 20 years ago and I was, a, I was, I was, I was but a young sysadmin and uh, we were updating our, our then fancy pants um, uh, network, network attack storage and uh, I powered it down and went in the data center and said, oh, it's not powered down. And so the, uh, the field engineer for the company said, oh, just hold the button down. It, it, sometimes it gets stuck on power down. So I held the button down. It was the wrong system. <laughs> so I powered <laughs> off the wrong box. Um, so uh, I, mean, I think everybody else has some story related to that. But um, there was a report from the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon University that came out, and they always publish their um, insider threat report. And this one said that um, I think it was 28% of attacks happened from someone inside the company, and those attacks have a cost on average 50% higher than an external attacker. And that's often because of their privileged access. So um, now you're saying, well, this is the Ubuntu security podcast. What does the operating system have to do with that? And I think there's a lot of things we could talk about, Alex. Um, so first off, there's the whole idea of principle of least privilege, right? So if you still have people somehow logging in as root or sharing accounts so you don't have accountability, that, that's, just, that's just silly, right? Have privileged separation users. Have people use sudo. Um, Sudo has logging. Um, make, sh- make sure you have a centralized log server. I mean, uh, you might have a, a SIM or, or, or a SEM, um, but if you don't, just set up syslog, right? I mean, you can still use grep. You don't need to have a, um, a commercial tool or you can even use many of the open source tools, but you can also use grep on a syslog server. Um, you know, audit who has access to what periodically. I know, you know, we have the security team, Alex, and people have... have transitioned onto other teams at canonical and we've got to go back through and we always make sure that that nobody has access they're not supposed to have every company should make sure to audit who has access to what data um something you'll see like should a sysadmin who can restart a web server should they have database access um <laughs> what's the first thing you do when you install mysql i mean by default what's mysql's uh access to the root user mm. for the database <laughs> it's 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 root without a password yeah. any user logs on can do mysql dash u root and then connect so you have to use mysql secure is it mysql secure installation i think it's it's MySQL underscore since i set one up yeah <laughs> it's definitely mysql underscore something underscore something underscore installation right yep. so so there's that um and then you know have an egress firewall um I'm a huge fan of the um, of the Cyber Kill Chain paper from Lockheed Martin. Have you read that? No, I haven't read that one, Joe. Uh, it's really it's it's really neat because it came out sort of saying it's not if you get compromised, but that you'll get compromised. 
and here's the different seven stages of of um of an attack and how you can detect each stage but really what i liked about it besides detecting the stages was that unless the attacker exfiltrates data or accesses data but you can call it exfiltration if you want and causes a denial of service or a deletion of data didn't really do anything so just by accessing your network it's not a hack it's debatable but but unless they actually cause interruption of service or exfiltration of data, it doesn't matter. So, um, you know, if you if you have restrictive egress rules in your firewalls, then you're really limiting the ability to exfiltrate the data. Um, I, I kind of laugh about this one because everybody has a personal Gmail account and you check them at work, right? I mean, how everybody's checking Gmail. We, I mean, if you use Google Apps for business, you're probably allowing the Gmail domain in. So that limits the ability to lock, block that. And yep. And Gmail is definitely a way to um, push out data. Um, you know, I've seen this a lot of times when I was doing incident response. Um, companies set up um, point-to-point VPNs for their um, for their business partners, right? So you get a business partner who always comes in, so you create a point-to-point VPN for them, um, and it's long-standing. Well, <laughs> I, I worked with one company that had seven hundred business partner VPNs, and one of the first things we did is make them do an audit. You know, who do they still need this access? It's ridiculous, right? And and I think we got rid of something like 500 of them um, wow. by doing this audit. So that's quite a and, huge and attack insane. surface, a latent attack surface, I guess, that they've given themselves with that, right? Yeah, and a lot of them, like the companies they were doing business with weren't in business anymore. So the other side of that VPN wasn't being used, but still you had the credentials there, right? Yeah. And what if that person went on? Um, and then, uh, you know, make sure that if you do have these VPNs for business partners or consultants or something, that they're not sharing credentials, that you've got named accounts that use two-factor auth, right? Um, and then I'm just a huge fan of NetFlow data. Um, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but NetFlow is an awesome way to set up and monitor what access is being done on your networks with no storing of PII, just sort of the summary information, um, and then be able to actually look at, well, how much data is being moved, you can do um, anomaly detection and detect, you know, malicious actors on your network. Uh, we should do a whole podcast about NetFlow because I am a big fan. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so those are some of the things. Um, and then, you know, always go back and realize what data you're storing and does it need to be stored. I think last time I was on the call with you, Alex, we talked about, oh, was it, uh, I can't remember the company, but they were storing credentials, I think, in their logs yep. of, of authenticity, right? Yeah, so do you need to store that, right? What data do you actually need? I'm a big fan of throwing out any data you do not need. Uh, expire data, get rid of data, make sure, because data sitting around that has any PII in it can get you in trouble, especially now with things like GDPR, et cetera. Yeah, I guess it's hard when your whole business model is like Facebook or Snapchat and it's built around that data and being able to do like big data analytics on it to you know build up social graphs and know how to advertise at people. But for uh, regular companies who are just collecting data as part of their standard uh, business workflow, yes, you know they should be purging that uh, or you know only holding it as is actually required for the, you know business operation. Yeah. yeah, and actually, doesn't doesn't GDPR specify that IP address is part of it falls under underneath the auspices of GDPR? I'm not sure. Yeah, personally, I yeah, you, I you mean as does. opposed to like just metadata that it's yeah, yeah it's, that an IP address can be used to identify a user, yeah. but. So what I'm thinking about that is like, do your, do your, do your Apache logs or Nginx logs, yeah. do you need to protect them the same way? Um, 
But I would even ask if you go back to Snapchat, like if we look at like phone number and um, location data, which they said was accessed, do you need that? And it's, do you actually need the phone number? Do you need the location? Or can you, can you obfuscate that somehow? Can you say, I don't need exact location. Can I limit it to, let's say, city or state instead of just like the actual GPS coordinates? Can you, can you, is that good enough for the analytics they need? I would almost say it probably is. And for phone number, do you actually need the phone number or do you, because you have some other unique identifier for the, for the client, which I imagine is a UUID of some sort that's not mm. the phone number. Yeah, so. I, I guess hard in things like, uh, say, Snapchat or other uh, of these messaging applications where it probably uses your phone number to identify your account so that you can, you know, say, get a new phone and still log back in with the same account because you've still got the same phone number. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, they could maybe have that uh, like one level of indirection where all their the data they store is stored with some other you know identifier instead of that phone number, and then you just have a mapping that you can use, and maybe that mapping is kept as a more privileged you know thing that's harder to get access to. And yeah, I don't know. Yes, obviously yeah. There, yeah, there are ways that we can build these systems to. Uh, I guess, and it comes back to something I actually saw the other day. I think it was Jeff Atwood. Um, tweeted saying that you know you should build your systems assuming that your users are evil and i think that also should come down to also assuming your employees can be evil so that you limit not just you know what what your users can do and you you know build user you know kind of separation and the the kind of stuff that we do to make our systems resilient against uh, external attack we should assume that our insiders may be wanting to attack our systems and how can we build them to to try and stand up against that as well Absolutely. You know, you've got that scenario where you've got a, um, where, where, where people think I'm behind the corporate firewall, so I'm safe. And that's just, that's just not true, especially with the corporate firewall being so, I'll say, amorphous now with, with, uh, uh, with the cloud. Yeah. Well, so. It's like you said, when you, if you're using, you know, Gmail or G Suite for your corporate email, now suddenly yeah, that's also now part of your internal network, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think we've covered Insider Threat today. Cool. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Alex. So thanks very much, Joe, for that. Okay, so the team is hiring. We have two open positions at the moment, one for a robotics security engineer. So if you are into ROS, the robotics operating system, and uh, you're into security, uh, you'd, and you'd like to work on that for Ubuntu and Canonical, I urge you to please apply for that one. And we've also got an open position for a security certifications engineer. So if you know what STIG and common criteria and those kind of certification standards are, and you would help, like to help make Ubuntu comply to those standards, then I would urge you to apply for the second position. Uh, I've got links to both of those job uh, descriptions and applications in the show notes. Okay, that takes us to the end of this episode. As usual, if you'd like to get in contact with the team, you can reach us at security at ubuntu.com. Or you can find the team hanging out in the Ubuntu Harden channel on the Freenode IRC network. And I'd urge you to come along and chat to us about anything Ubuntu security related. We'd love to say good day. Or you can find us on Twitter at Ubuntu underscore sec. Okay, so thanks everyone for listening again for another week. I will catch you all soon. And until then, remember, keep calm and enable automated upgrades. And I'll speak to you soon. Bye.